0: Hi everyone, it's Joachim Makreen, your host of the Elite Game Developers podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this episode, I'm talking with Shanti Bergel, Managing Director at Transcend Fund. Transcend is an early stage venture capital firm focusing on games and digital entertainment. Shanti has a long career in gaming and has been working in free-to-play for almost 20 years. We talk about Shanti's approach in investing into games and how he evaluates gaming studios for an investment. Before we get into the discussion, here's a few words from our sponsor. Hey, game developer. Are you looking for great new, authentic video creatives? Try something totally new with influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific creative content for your games, and Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Get a free video with a purchase of four or more videos. Remember to say that elite game developers sent you to claim your free video. Go to getigc.com to see some examples and get more information. That's getigc.com. Hi, Shanti. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
0: What's like December like in, in London, where you're based now?
1: Yeah, so I just moved here about a month ago. And I'd say the big difference is I was living in San Francisco for close to 20 years. And, you know, it's clearly it's colder, but also the big difference is the time, well, rather it gets dark so much earlier. So that takes a bit of getting used to it. Sunset here is around 3.45 in the afternoon, whereas San Francisco, I don't know, it's more like seven o'clock. So it just feels so much later, so much earlier. So that takes a little getting used to. But otherwise, I've been liking it a lot. It's, it's been a really good switch.
0: And and we're recording it on the day that Great Britain is starting the vaccinations, actually.
1: I think I heard this morning that a 90-year-old lady was the, uh, the very first. Um, I think they're going in order of you know, at-risk groups. So that probably means my wife and I are, are going to be fairly low on the list. But yeah, Great Britain seems to be one of the first countries to begin Vaccinations, which wasn't part of my plan in moving here, of course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, you saw it like a few months ahead.
1: Yeah, I'd love to take care for it all, but you know it was all a brilliant you know, plan of mine. But unfortunately, uh, <laughs> not. It just what
0: happens? Yeah, these things happen. But yeah, hey, let's get going here. What can you talk about? How you made your way into to gaming and to eventually start Transcend Fund?
1: Yeah, so I started in a different games industry than exists today. I started almost 30 years ago in uh, the, the world of games on, on CDs. And actually, my very first games uh, were, were on uh, floppy disks. Uh, so it was a long, long time ago. And my first proper game company that I worked for was a company that made PC and console games uh, called Interplay, which at the time was famous for, I think I joined when the company was making a game called Descent. Uh, which was a big competitor to to Doom. It was like a 3D shooter in space. It became very popular. Uh, similar shareware model to Doom, actually. So you'd see people downloading it on PBSs and putting it on floppy disks and sharing it around. So that was the uh, kind of the beginning of my proper game industry experience. I had been part of a kind of a consulting company before that that had a couple of game uh, clients and that kind of got me interested in you know, making the move. But as a kid, of course, I'd been playing games on my Commodore 64 at home. And you know, like, I love games, but you know, like, that was my first opportunity to actually be in the industry. And so over time, you know, like, my first couple of jobs were mostly on the product side. So I started kind of low-level production and then moved up to you know, game producer eventually.
0: What was the, the product discussion like back in the day? In the floppy disk days, like compared to what it's now, actually. Like that's I, was, I was kind of the tail end of the floppy disk days, more like the CD days was. The
1: yeah.
0: Days. So, like,
1: uh, we, were, we were starting to work on games for the 3DO and PlayStation 1 back then. But yeah, I mean, there were different distribution kind of um, concerns, of course. I mean, everything was done at retail. Um, mm. so, you know, the uh, voice of the sales team was large you know like they would give you a forecast you're like oh i think i can sell this many to to target and to walmart and to you know these type of retail accounts i can get you know like OEM was also a big channel back then and so you know we a bundle you know software in volume with uh, different pc manufacturers um and that was also a big deal i at that point in my career also moved to japan and so i was dealing with kind of like the japan specific flavors of a lot of those questions a lot of the you know questions around like would this game get greenlit or not had to do with retail forecasts, and so it's like how many units you know can you put through the retail channel it was like the, the base assumption set, and you know like the other side of it was uh, magazines, so like magazines were mm-hmm. the communication channel to the to the players, um, and you didn't really have that many direct channels at all. You wouldn't really be able to talk to the players, you know, the way there was no internet, for example, <laughs> like in the early days. Um, and so there's no real
0: direct channel to talk to the players. To press. Yeah, that's like immediately starting thinking about like there was no soft launch. Like there was that we were really, really far from that. Uh, you you had no direct customer relationship inside, or you couldn't really talk about that. But, but you were doing play tests still. You were playing the game internally and having that discussion. But like the green light process was through the, the sales projections, right?
1: Yeah. And so it, 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 it tended to be um, a combination of production people with, you know, like a strong gut sense, you know, and, and kind of you know, like able to successfully argue that, no, there will be a market for this, even mm. though like, we've not done something like this before, versus the more conservative kind of, you know, call it the sales input, which is like, oh, well, you know, the last shooter of that type only sold this many. So what makes you think this one will be any different? Um, yeah. And you get these kind of, you know, like fairly narrow discussions around like what the possibility space was. And then also, you know, like the overall market was much smaller. You know, like the number of people with these devices in their, <clears throat> in their homes or you know, like having some kind of access was quite a bit smaller than what you see today. Um, you know, the cost from a, like a personal, like yearly salary standpoint. Like having a PC in your house, And like that, you know, kind of country by country, was, was quite a bigger commitment than it is today.
0: Mm. Yeah, and it was probably like a, a much more narrow audience specification, like who you're targeting versus what what it is nowadays regarding how you yeah. onboard players and stuff.
1: For sure. I mean, you can look at some early stage markets today. You can look at VR, for example, and you know, like I wouldn't say it's exactly the same, but like mm. you can you can you can get a feel for it. You know, like that's a limited, you know, kind of hardware footprint. You know, more of an enthusiast market has different characteristics, therefore, than say a mass market like mobile.
0: Yeah. Can you talk about then your shift to, to online and mobile?
1: Yeah. So I had kind of fits and starts. Um, like I was always interested in the way that distribution affects product and product strategy. And so, you mm. know, like I saw there was any way to directly reach audiences, I was interested. Um, and so I think the first time that you know, like I experienced any of that was, well, we had m- uh, online multiplayer through some plugins or, or they were like, um, uh, like third party tools back back in the early PC days, so for example, Descent could be played um, online through the internet through something called Kali. Um, and you know, like there's some other you know, tools like that that you could basically allow. Um, usually you could just play on a LAN against people who are in your general area. But you know, like the first time you could do true online play was was, was even back then, um, and then you know like is America Online, things like that. You know, it like started to make more of this stuff possible. But my first company where you know, like I actually worked in mobile was EA Mobile. Actually, technically, I, I worked in The Sims. So I made the very first Sims mobile game for Java and Brew back before a smartphone. This was the old Nokia brick phones. J2ME kind of that era and while it, it was a little more direct to consumer people were downloading the games directly it was still through a retail-esque channel i mean, like the, the carriers controlled what was called deck placement mm-hmm. and if you weren't one of the top three on certain handsets because the handsets were very small you know like you wouldn't you know people would have to scroll down and it wasn't easy to do that like you'd have to use the whatever that is the, the lowermost kind of character on your, your phone to like scroll down yeah. Uh, so it was a blinky experience, and you know, like memory book prints were all different, and you had to port to hundreds of different handsets. And it was a very broken you know, ecosystem. But you could see the power of being able to put software directly into people's hands. I left uh, after the, that, that first game, which was actually quite successful by mobile standards that, back then, to go to do uh, free-to-play at a small startup in San Francisco called Three Rings that did free-to-play MMOs that was a bit more rewarding from a like, direct consumer standpoint. Like, I really was interested in free-to-play. This was long before you know, kind of social gaming and Facebook and all of that. Um, this was back when you, know, you could only really... It was called thick client downloadable MMOs. Um, so you download a big pack of software on your machine, you see, and uh, you play online with other people. That was one of the very first times that I got to experience the power of the online community in a very real way. I think MMOs in general had you know kind of been doing that, but free-to-play MMOs allowed that to be. The door was wide open to anybody who wanted to try it, and so unlike, say, subscription models where you had a you had a community, they were kind of self-filtering because they were willing to pay. This was wide open, and so it was a very interesting learning experience and fed directly into what happened next on Facebook free-to-play and then on mobile free-to-play. Mm.
0: Yeah, that that era shifted like rapidly to Facebook. And then you went from Facebook to the back to smartphones. And like that was a super interesting time. I think now it's been more stagnated for the last five, seven, five years.
1: There have been moments where I think it stagnated and then broke free again and then stagnated and broke free again, but not at the, not at the big kind of platform level. I think mm. I remember after the Facebook wave and after the smartphone wave, there was a lot of kind of um, expectation that these waves were just going to keep coming fast and furious, and uh, yeah. the next wave was was right around the corner. And I think that's what a lot of uh, thought VR was going to be. They looked at VR, yeah. oh, well, this is the third wave. You know, like let's let's kind of shift and you know kind of try try things over there. And it didn't turn out to be the case. And I think historically, you know, these types of disruptive waves are are fairly, fairly rare, and so we just happened mm-hmm. to have two in a row, which I think was a bit of a stutter step head fake, whatever you want to call it, got people thinking like, oh, you know, these waves happen all the time. And I think now, now we have a more sophisticated online, you know, kind of opportunity space where there's lots and lots of little waves happening uh, at various levels of maturity in parallel at the same time. And that in itself is its own, kind of disruptive effect, but it's harder to point to one specific part of the ecosystem and say like, oh, it was mobile or oh, it's Facebook. Um, because now there's you know kind of a hundred things going on at once.
0: Yeah. you spent some time in corporate development before you jumped into full-time VC. Can you talk about that path that you took, and what is corporate development for people who don't know?
1: Corporate development is one of those things that, I guess if you've not been in a big company or tried to sell a company, it, it may sound a little bit odd. But corporate development is is a bit of a long-term strategic function inside typically larger companies. And so this is the group that works with primarily the the executive team to identify, you know, kind of long-term opportunities and threats um, and attempts to plan around them with a very specific set of tools which usually involves some kind of strategic finance or strategic partnership. So you'll see people with titles that are like corporate development and strategy, corporate development and business development. like. You know, but essentially, it's, it's long-range stuff um, with some kind of big kind of esoteric tools, most important of which is probably mergers and acquisitions and investments. And so you'll see corporate investment being driven out of groups like that, as well as acquisitions being driven out of that. So I ran, um, I was kind of a supporting function for a while uh, to corporate development when I was at Playfish. Um, and then I ran corporate development uh, at both Gris and Fun Plus, which are both uh, mobile game company.
0: Was that like, especially like for your career? Like we we discussed this before, I remember this discussion where you mentioned that working in corporate development actually prepared you really well for the, the challenges of uh, venture capital. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a little counterintuitive to some people. Um, I mean, first of all, because maybe people don't have a good sense of what corporate development is. But um, in my case, why I say that is that there's, I think a sense that being a VC is, is, is some you know, kind of um, powerful position. In some senses it is, but in some senses it's really not um, because you're, you're partnering with people who are really driving the show. You partner with an entrepreneur, you kind of back their vision, you help them do more and more with, you know, kind of the opportunity space that you're kind of co-creating with them. And that is a backseat type role. You're not driving. Um, and so like corporate development is a bit of a backseat type role where you're 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 helping the executive team, you're helping the entrepreneurs that you acquire into the company. and you're really kind of trying to keep a larger uh, agenda in play and doing it mostly through influence, you know I, you know call it soft power if you're familiar with that terminology, but yeah. you like, don't have any direct control on corporate development. You are basically, um, using the power of you know, kind of your ideas and to some degree, you know, kind of your checkbook to you know, kind of move things along in the direction you think is correct, and VC is a little bit like that. Um, I wouldn't say it's the same. Um, I mean, it certainly didn't prepare me perfectly. But you know, like I think the other half of my particular background is I, I also spent you know, like half of my time in corporate development, half of my time in production, and so I sympathize with you know, kind of the the day to day grind of Making a game because I've made games, and then I sympathize with the you know, kind of the, the longer term, uh, strategic elements of building a game company because I know where those companies end up when they get acquired. Um, so I kind of seen the full arc of the shop floor all the way to the boardroom, and so sometimes that's a helpful combination to the portfolio companies that we work with.
0: Mm. And in these cases, when it is kind of this strategic partnership where you're representing the corporation who is helping the other party and you're there in the mix, you want to see results as well from, from the decisions that you made. Like is it a, was it a good decision early on or not? And it does sound like very much like a VC role, although you have the ops background there from your own kind of job per se.
1: Yeah. So the the long-term orientation is definitely similar. The thing that's that's very different is that you're at the opposite end of the life cycle of um, mm. like when you're in M and A you're at the end of the life cycle buying the company that has been built by you know the founders and the investors uh, whereas a VC you're at the beginning stage and like yep. me like some people have asked me. Uh, actually, everyone has asked me at every stage of my career why I gave up the job I, I had before. <laughs> and like yeah. when I was a producer, people were like, "Oh, that's the greatest job in the world. Why would you ever leave that?" And when I was a, a corporate development people person, people would say that too. It's like, "Oh, you get to see everything in the industry. Such a privileged position. Why would you ever give that up?" And so, for me personally, you know, like I think the mix that VC offers of combining those two is really the most rewarding um, aspect of it. Is because I really loved making things. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't frankly patient enough to invest two years every time to you know, kind of see them through. And I found it very frustrating not to be able to work at industry scale all the time. And so VC allows me to do both things at once, to partner with people who are much better at, you know, kind of the focus of delivering against a very specific game vision while also kind of looking more broadly at what's going on in the industry and attempting to orchestrate something at a portfolio level.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Before we go to to investing topics, like, can you introduce Transcend Fund? What you're doing now?
1: Sure. Yeah, <laughs> I, I forgot. <laughs> um, so Transcend Fund um, for for people who don't know us, and, and you might not. It's it's a it's a new fund this year. We launched uh, in March of 2020. Uh, so we were born into the pandemic, to say it dramatically. It's an early stage fund focused primarily on games. It's about fifty million dollars, and we do checks from a couple hundred K to a couple million uh, U.S. dollars, and um, we have a growing portfolio of, of game development and game development impact with businesses that we've backed. We invest globally. Part of the reason that I moved from, from Silicon Valley to, to Europe um, was to be closer to the talent base uh, in Europe. Uh, we, we used to joke that it's, it's hard to be a global fund when both of us are in the same city in north america and so you know, like my my being here is you know, kind of part of our commitment to you know, expanding our reach globally. like
0: when you're evaluating a company for investment what are the top areas that you look for in a company so that you could get to a yes for an investment
1: to put it really simply i mean uh, Ambition against categories that matter, and the credibility to achieve that um, is I think, the, the easiest way to say it. But there's a lot that goes into that, of course. You know, like each one of those kind of statements kind of has its own set of things that has to be um, evaluated and, and checked. I mean, the other thing, frankly, is you know, like even if you have all that, you know, like there's a, there's a personal fit that, that comes with it as well. So I mean, you can pack that into credibility if you like, but. You know like these are long projects, right? And so if we don't feel a certain amount of like kinship with the folks that are on the other side of the table, we will always worry that it will be you know kind of less than satisfying for for them or for us. Um, and so I guess that would be the other kind of intangible side of it is like, um, yes, we look for you know, kind of ambition and we're going for something big, um, and then we evaluate the credibility of the team to do that. But then we also want to make sure that we, Can feel enthusiastic and then enthusiastic about us working together for a long period of time.
0: What weighs the most? Do you think it's still like at the early stage, it needs to be credibility uh, always? Like, how do you back a team without the, the, how do you measure credibility for a, a team that's, you know, not, doesn't have the most impressive LinkedIn resumes?
1: Yeah, so it gets a little nuanced um, depending on where you're, you're headed. So if, if you're headed into a red ocean category with lots of competition and lots of known best practices, I think that's where you know, like experience and credibility and being a known quantity matters much more. If you're going into a blue ocean area where you know, there are fewer competitors and you know, like it is more about learning quickly, then I think like having a stacked LinkedIn matters less. It's more about your personal intellectual horsepower and ability to drive results um, in an in this opportunity space that's pretty much there for the taking. Of course, it's never that cut and dry. It's never that clear cut. Um, it, well, certain big exceptions, I guess, historically, but when we look at certain opportunity spaces, they may look blue ocean. But then the flip side of blue ocean is like, okay, well, why is nobody doing that,
0: <laughs> right? Is yeah, that even... Usually, yeah, there's something wrong there.
1: <laughs> What's wrong with it? Um, and so you know, like that's always, I think, the when people talk about fit between entrepreneurs and the investors, some of that is a shared vision for if there's a there there, right? It's like, mm. oh well, you know, like that's an emergent space. You know, like, are you talking to investors who believe in that emergent space at all? Because you'll talk to certain investors who, you know, even today, you know, like esports, VR, instant games—you know, take your pick—they um, do or do not, you know, like kind of have a fundamental belief in the long-term viability of that space. And so, it doesn't matter how credible you are if you're talking to an investor who just fundamentally doesn't believe that's going to be an opportunity. Then it's kind of an uphill battle.
0: Yeah, I just recently had this discussion about the hybrid casual space, especially the mo- a mobile, where you have. A lot of companies trying to get in, and I had two separate discussions, and people were evaluating success differently. Basically, with total opposite ideas of what makes success. So it's it's not a clear cut thing usually. Like, how do you guys like do that kind of evaluation of when you play a game from a gaming studio? What are the things that you're looking for in these early builds, whatnot? When you don't have the metrics available, how can you really say that, okay, is this something that the category will like? What do you think?
1: We do our best to kind of apply our our personal histories and think uh, in terms of the the audience and Mm. what the opportunity space is for the developer to reach that audience in a way that's meaningful to, to that group. And so... What about you? Know, I mean, I, as a game producer myself, back in the day, you know, I certainly played a lot of early rough stuff um, and was involved in decision making around it. But you know, I think the one thing that we can say is that it's really hard to stand out when you're going into areas that are you know highly competitive. Gaming in general is competitive, even if you don't have a direct competitor in your exact category. You know, you're competing for people's time always. Been even quotes from. The CEO of Netflix said that his biggest competition was Fortnite. And so, like, you can see that you know, like even at that level, people are thinking about the substitutability of just time itself for entertainment. And so, in games, you know, like, there's always another game that somebody could be playing, even if it's not in your exact category. So, you're competing with other games, you're competing with other forms of entertainment, and you're also competing with the back catalog of our entire industry that is mostly downloadable and available online now. And so, that kind of means that even if you don't have direct competition, you know, like the idea that you have to stand out and matter to people, I think, is pretty primary. You know, like, there are lots of ways to, to think about that. You know, like some people approach it from a very product-centric uh, viewpoint. Some people uh, approach it very marketing-centric. And be like, hey, if I can get these economics and get you know kind of this this CAC LTV arbitrage going on, then I can get more distribution, and therefore, you know, like I can win that way. I would say we as an investor tend to be more interested in things that are authentically uh, true to the audience, and so like CAC LTV arbitrage isn't necessarily super authentic, but maybe something you're doing in product to enable that CAC LTV arbitrage is. And so that's what's interesting to us is trying to understand what is it that you know about your audience that's, that makes it possible for you to create something that is um, differentiated and will stand out and be memorable and become someone's kind of regular hobby.
0: Mm, that's a good point. Yeah. What do you think are the common mistakes that experienced gaming people when they're, you know, they have a like this extensive LinkedIn resume, and they, they start their first games company. Like, what are the things that these people haven't prepared themselves for until they become a founder?
1: Everyone's different, and it's hard to say like, the mistakes that everybody makes. But if I had to kind of like, go down the, the, kind of the main line, I'd say people with lots of game development experience, um, when they start a, a new company, like, their mistakes tend to be in everything else that isn't game development, which is a lot. Right, so there's, you know, kind of there's all the entrepreneurial stuff: as to starting a company, scaling a company, hiring, legal, uh, corporate development, things like that. And so all of that stuff matters a great deal, even if you understand game development. I think the longer answer, you know, it's been said that a startup is not a small version of a large company, and I think that observation is also pretty primary to the point around like, okay, you know, the things that you haven't done as a game developer, well. You haven't necessarily say you worked at a big company and you were addressing a big audience um, because it's a legacy, you know, uh, it's a legacy franchise. So you've been extending a legacy franchise for the last five years of your career. Can you diagnose an emergent space? You know, can you go into a blue ocean and figure out you know, like what is going to be the next thing that's going to happen there and like be there to ride the wave when it happens? Like sometimes that's just fundamentally a different skill set um, and maybe somebody without a long history of doing it a particular way will be able to you know unclimb their mountains faster and figure it out you know like i think the the fit with the individual opportunity is a little bit tricky to diagnose but it starts with being clear eyed about what the opportunity really is like are you going to make an incrementally better uh, rpg are you going to make something transformatively different and what do you mean by that and so those are, I think, inputs to this question. But you know, I think recognizing that a startup in its early stages is fundamentally, you know, kind of a, a learning organism that's um, trying to find, you know, something out about the market or a product or its audience, and then derive strategic advantage from that faster than other people and uh, yeah. get somewhere quickly. And so, if you don't believe in getting somewhere quickly, you don't believe in kind of that, you know, kind of uh, step function of of action resulting in a hockey stick, it might not be a good fit with venture. Um, So venture capitalists expect the hockey stick eventually. And so I think games, one of the great things about games today is that you can make an extremely profitable two-person game company um, with no need for outside financing at all. And that's a great thing to do. You know, like I have friends who do that. You know, like they create these little tiny companies they, they kind of bootstrap themselves to a place where they have great cash flow and paying themselves more than they ever could if they worked for somebody else. And they have no need for, you know, kind of um, outside investors. Um, they're never going to, you know, kind of, you know, hit tens, hundreds, you know, kind of billions of dollars. But the fit with ventures typically, you know, like I want to create something that's going to do something uh, eventually resulting in this kind of uh, hockey stick moment where the company grows considerably and hopefully that happens in a time frame like between you know kind of three to seven years
0: yeah yeah i think that is is sort of like the the moment where you realize that you're not actually going after that like then it's the mismatch really like is, is evident like i've seen it happen a lot a lot like how do you approach a founder who is all of these topics could be taught as like they're qualifying people for a startup, but it's more about the learning, like taking in feedback, reacting to that feedback. Is that one of the the areas that you look for is like founders actually like taking feedback and coming back to you with sort of like the thoughts? And does that get people closer to getting to a yes?
1: First of all, I don't think you can get to yes with every investor. I think yes. certain investors, like I said, certain investors, because of what they think, um, they may never be, you know, a yes for you. Like if mm-hmm. if, I, if you're talking to somebody, if you're an esports business and you are talking to somebody who's fundamentally not an esports investor, there is no yes. It's just mm-hmm. you know, just a complete mismatch. But to the degree that it's possible, sorry, if you could repeat the question
0: again. Yeah, like there's some some topics that come up in the discussions with founders and investors where it is sort of like, what are they going after? Is it, is the ambition level correct? Is it aligned with what venture wants to see? And if you give feedback to founders and the founders come back to you with sort of like, you know, they've iterated what they're thinking about doing. They maybe didn't like consider all the the areas that they would need to think about to have a venture scale business. Like, do you, do you go from not knowing to actually giving a yes to them if, if they're sort of, like, evolving during a time period when you're having those discussions?
1: Yes, it, it can happen. Um, I think it's important that, you know, like that be sincere um, and mm. not simply really a, a checkbox exercise to convince an investor. So long as it is actually your plan and your intention to kind of achieve it, um, then yes, that's possible. Because, you know, like, it is important to, you know, we, we have this phrase, I think, in, you know, in, in in tech investing in general, where it's like uh, strong beliefs loosely held, uh, which tends to mean, you know, like mm. you believe something really strongly until you don't. <laughs> and, <then> you <laughs> and, you know, like changing your mind is fine, so long as it's it's not something that just happens willy nilly. It's, it's something that happens because of a process you're running and you're, you know, it's an evidence based thing and you have a plan for how you might change it. I'm going to run this experiment and that experiment and I'm going to learn from people in the market and I'm going to kind of evolve my way to, uh, to greatness. Um, I think simply running that learning experience well is almost required at this point. I, I don't know that you can, you know, kind of, um, operate you know like in certain gaming markets without that orientation, particularly if you want to run you know, kind of a service-based business. I think service-based businesses very much require you to evolve alongside your audience um, and to be you know kind of customer data driven to some degree. That said, you know like where you start that journey, you know, like it, you, you know like everyone has an experience base that either is advantageous or not in terms of a starting point about like oh you know, the person with the great LinkedIn and you know kind of uh, 20 years experience like they might have an advantage because they're you know kind of they're they're jumping onto that you know, kind of that ski jump you know kind of 50 feet higher than you know than somebody else and so yes they will have more momentum unless that what they think they know isn't worth anything right so that's always a possibility right like uh, I've definitely had experiences in my lifetime where I've come to things with high degrees of of confidence that turned out to be not true. I thought I knew how this worked, and I made yep. all conclusions based on this assumption that I thought I knew how it worked. Um, and it turned out that what I knew was old and outdated, and needed to be updated and list.
0: Yeah, there's also this confirmation bias that can start happening when you see certain things that work, but then doesn't always fit the team that is coming to you for yes, your investment.
1: Usually, held part matters. I think even yeah. people with great experience. Like some of the people who I respect the most have been so successful in their careers and yet don't claim to have the answers. Oh. You know, they're the least convinced that they have the answers sometimes. And they're most really interested in questions. And that's what I love about you know, kind of working around people like that is that they're just genuinely interested in working with smart people to get to an outcome. Um, and you know, like they won't lecture you on what they think they know. They will be very interested in kind of putting what they know on the table and using it as a tool to uh, help the group get to a, a positive space.
0: Yeah, that's that's totally true. Like then thinking about the because uh, I, I want to still do a deep dive on decision making because like I'm doing angel investing alone in a sense. So with like how I make the decisions it's very clear that I, I sort of like think about. Like what are the great qualities with the team, and it's always a team-based investment. So I, I try to come up, come in before they have the metrics. But like for you, you work with your your partner Graham. Like, do you have these debates when it's like, let's say that it's it's a hard decision to make? Do you have debates at where you know there's areas where you might need to overthink and spend a lot of time before? Things become clear enough.
1: Yes, so I think you know strong and strong positive, strong negative signals are easy to interpret. Um, like from there, you can go to a quick decision. Things that are in the middle are actually a broader category of things than I think um, you know one might expect. So, for example, people with great LinkedIn's known teams with you know kind of great uh, intellectual capacity and great experience going after things that they've never done before or going after things that they fundamentally, they don't respect the audience in a way that gives you confidence that they know how to achieve greatness in this particular format. Um, so that's also in the middle. Um, so it's not just as simple as saying like, Oh, well, you know, a great team will figure it out. They might. Um, but if they fundamentally misorient themselves to the opportunity and the audience, then in like, how long will it take before that can be corrected? And like, do they have the capability to make that kind of self-correction?
0: There are lots of examples
1: of things like that in the middle. Um, So the flip is that is kind of unknown teams uh, with super compelling ideas, but less verifiable credibility. And so another version of it is um, spaces that I don't know very well. right? So where I have to learn in order to kind of come up to speed on what the opportunity space really is. Uh, So, I think one of the things that, you know, like I've learned to respect is the depth of various niche areas of our business. You know, like I remember we, we bought a company at one point in one of my, when I was running corporate development, like they were really great at one particular category, they were killing it. You know, like They came in, they, they we, 5x the run rate of what they were doing very quickly. And so there was a lot of confidence around you know, kind of this, this team. Um, and they said, like, oh, well, we want to go into this other category. Um, it's got some similar characteristics, but it's got a fundamentally different player base. But we're going to approach it like this. And that seemed you know, logical enough, but it turned out that they, they really didn't have you know, like the depth of understanding of that particular category um, at the level necessary to compete with um, people who specialized in it. And so my ability to appreciate the depth of whatever category you know, those folks might be going into is also important. Um, because otherwise, you know, like you can get people who are super credible going after something that looks, you know, kind of big or you know, kind of emergent. And if I don't have proper appreciation for it as an investor, that can also make it in the middle. So I think you know, like all of those actors kind of coming together um, with the right orientation and appreciation for plan um, is definitely part of the mix.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Uh, then thinking about like helping founders that you've. You've invested into thinking about this value add term that often gets thrown around. Like, where do you see seed and like a round investors truly helping? And how do you and Graham work with your per- portfolio of companies? Do you specialize in certain way of helping?
1: So I think this question of value add is is stage dependent. Um, so you know, early stage is is definitely all about company building. Uh, so it's about product, it's about hiring, it's about organization, legal structuring, things like that. Um, mid-stage, you know, you get into development methodology, and partnerships, business development, UA. Uh, later stage, you know, can often be about, you know, kind of finance strategy and, you know, M&A. Um, and so for us, you know, like having, like I've been in the games industry long enough to have seen most of those cycles. And so for me, it's which toolkit to unpack at what time. So, you know, like when somebody wants to hire a back-end engineer you know, we can we can uh, attempt to help them with that when they want to talk through an acquisition you know we can help them with that too um, you know, like I used to run you know I used to be the buyer essentially at a big public company I can easily put myself in the shoes of you know, kind of people who are looking to acquire one of our portfolio companies and so you know, we attempt to look at the the problems that that you know, like our founders are wrestling with and you know kind of put the right part of ourselves forward at
0: the right time right uh, and do you do you basically go in with with stating kind of like this is where we work with you if if we come on board and stuff like that is it do you want to cl- keep this kind of like transparency on like what are the founders actually like buying into <laughs> in a sense
1: um yeah, I, I don't know that it's it's that clearly marked on the back of the tin, you know. Like, yep. <laughs> I think some people come in the door, you know, like with a real um, clear idea of what they want from an investor and what they want from us specifically. Sometimes we, we've had a couple of folks come in and just basically say, you know, like, you know, we want to raise from you, um, and mm-hmm. here's why. And so like those conversations are quite directed and quite specific. But those are people who already know us pretty well. Um, so like for example, one of those cases was like we know that you know like, we're gonna need you know, kind of that corporate development, you know, kind of MA instinct as we build our company, even from the beginning. And I think one of the things about acquisition that a lot of folks don't appreciate as well as perhaps they could is the long arc. Of um storytelling that goes into a good acquisition. Um, yeah. So like you talk to anybody who does games acquisitions at a high level, they will tell you, you I know, mean, like it's not like a, like an engagement at the end of life where they simply look at your KPIs and your revenue and be like, oh, sounds good. Like they've typically known about your company from its first funding all the way until you know like kind of you're looking for an exit. Um and so you know, when I ran corporate development, I made it my business to know. Those arcs of all of the companies in the industry that, that might matter to us. And so, you know, like that long arc of storytelling really um, is part of what, you know, kind of we help some of our, our founders with, given our background in kind of corporate development and strategy. Um, and so, you know, like it's an input to hiring, it's an input to um, PR, it's an input to product in some cases. And so, you know, like, in, in some cases is exactly what people walk in the door asking for. You know, like I, I used to live in Japan. I speak Japanese. It's a whole different chapter of my career. Some people walk in the door saying, like, Oh, you know, like we want to know about Asia, you know, like your Asia background is particularly interesting to us. Like in addition to money and help and all this other stuff that most kind of early stage investors do, you know, like we have a specific interest in that aspect. What kind of you guys can help us. And then some of it is just orientation and fit. Um, like I said, you know, like, Sometimes we have the right kind of messianistic <laughs> belief in something um, that for whatever reason, founders don't find from somebody else. And so we click really well and like, that is the telling characteristic. You know, sometimes it's... You know.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Think about like, how you've developed as an investor, like, what are the areas that you've developed the most in the last two or three years? and What do you think contributed most to that development?
1: As an investor, the most meaningful thing that I've gotten better at is collaborative decision making. So, like working with others to, you know, kind of uh, as egolessly as possible, <clears throat> you know, kind of evaluate and partner with folks. Um, I think that's at the center of really what we do, and it's the, the one thing that you know like, we all have to get better at if we're going to be you know, kind of good at in, investing in game companies. There's a bunch of other stuff which is more back office and less important, but will quickly take all of your time if you don't get it sorted. And I've had to learn a bunch about that too, unfortunately. So I learned way more about, you know, kind of venture fund structure, tax and legal than I ever wanted to, but, you know, kind of required reading if you want to run a venture fund. But at the center of it, you know, like being able to work well with your partners, whether it's inside the fund to evaluate deals or, you know, with your portfolio companies to sincerely engage in their problem set and try and help them path to good outcomes like that's all. Like it kind of goes back to what I was saying about like why corporate development some sometimes prepares you a little bit for this job is that like you're you're doing a lot of that in corporate development not as collaboratively necessarily um, so that 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 part is slightly different but you know like the group nature and the uh, in corporate development you do a lot of work cross functionally um, so you put together a team of. Product and HR and you know finance and executive and you know kind of get this collection of people and you have to herd those cats. Um,
0: so that aspect
1: is is helpful, uh, though the format is different in the venture.
0: Mm. How do you think, like people who do invest as solo VCs or have a solo fund, how should they utilize like this kind of like collaborative decision making? Maybe even like bringing on people as advisors. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would hesitate to kind of advise, you know, people like that. But when I was doing it, um, you know, I used to do angel investing kind of on the side, as a side gig. And um, I would say that my life now and my life then are, are quite a bit different. There's a friend of mine who, um, he's an exceptionally successful engineer. He, he's had, I don't know how many exits, and he's the most awful angel investor by his own <laughs> Um, and one of the reasons he's an awful angel investor, he says, is that, you know, like, he just thinks that anything is possible. Like, he's quite a good engineer. And so he just thinks, that, oh, well, you know, this is all a layup, you know, like, these guys would just slam, slam, slam it out the door in you know, kind of record time. Um, so <laughs> like, that's rarely the case. And, you know, he gives people a bunch of money and then kind of walks away because he's an angel, matter. like, he's not proactively engaged with companies. So I think if you're going to invest and not be as actively involved um, you have to be realistic about you know, kind of you know, like the capabilities of the folks that you're, you're kind of giving money to and not project your own capabilities too much onto the team uh, which unfortunately is what <laughs> my first time it's uh, got a terrible portfolio as a result
0: yeah yeah i think like i noticed when nokia started going down in finland and a lot of engineering talent came out of that sort of like trap of Nokia, and there there was a lot of gaming startups actually founding at that stage when Rovio and Supercell were big uh, in Finland. But all of those startups are gone because they had all the technical skills, but they didn't really have the audience skill. You know that what do you actually need to to entertain an audience? Like what kind of mindset, what kind of you no know, work you need to do on that side. So I think that that is still going around, and it's. In a sense, it's it's one of the hardest things to say no to to a brilliant team, but they just don't have some some aspects that are needed. So that's at least been the hardest thing for me doing angel investing now.
1: Yeah, and I think um, some of that goes to you know that question of like strong signal, you know, strong positive signal, strong negative signal, middle. You know, like it used to be when I first started in the game industry that uh, strong engineering teams like were the Primary building block because so much of what you did was just getting the software out the door was really hard. You had to build your own engine from scratch. There was no Unity. There was no, you know, Unreal Engine, um, and like the, the off-the-shelf tools were um, not very easy to put together. And so, you know, tool chains and, and, uh, and all of this were, you know, kind of a lot more brittle. And so, keeping it all together was was its own set of challenges. And you're delivering onto a marketplace that was um, inherently smaller and more hobbyist. And so. Just fielding a team of engineers that could deliver some software, I mean, like whether it was you know, kind of highly insightful and attuned to the audience needs, you know, kind of that you know, wasn't as much the focus because it didn't really have to be. We weren't competing with thousands of other teams around the world always. Um, so if you could put you know, like a, um, a product out, you know, like that was a, that was a pretty big accomplishment. It was less less competitive, and so you know, like your need to be highly insightful on the audience front it was a little less pronounced, not to diminish any of the accomplishments that happened back then. Like I was part of the industry then too. And it it, uh, it, it was gargantuan achievement every time you could sh- even ship something. And so, you know, like that's always been you know the case. I think one of the things that gets obscured is that games unlike other media types is still software. You know, like you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not an easy thing to ship um, a piece of bug-free software. Um, yeah. and a piece of bug-free software that does something technical technically complex and is highly attuned to a particular market segment? Now you're talking about you know kind of orders of magnitude of complexity. And so you like, as the industry gets more sophisticated um, on all of these fronts, you know, it just becomes a balancing act to decide which of those to weigh more at what time.
0: Hmm. Do, do you think like the future platforms will actually Mm-hmm. require more skills from a gaming studio than what they do now. Of course, because that happened already in the last 15 years that you know the the need of what you need to have the skills and the talents in these studios went up like exponentially. Will that continue? What do you think?
1: I think it's become more required more often to have a, um, an integrated team, um, to have a team that understands how to ship software, but also how to do BI, to do UA, to do you know, kind of these, these other things that kind of shift the business into service models and to think about it in a full stack way, which is oriented around the audience. And so to the degree that that's what you're building, I mean, if you're building a, like a premium game on Apple Arcade, you can still hew more to the old version of, uh, of what good looks like. So your best practices can, can still be you know, kind of pretty unchanged, comparatively speaking, from, you know, kind of, say, 10 years ago. But if you're going after something where you want to be in direct contact with an audience, where you want to learn from them, where you want to you know, use a business model that isn't you know, kind of straight-ahead premium, um, then yeah, you'll probably have to craft your business. Uh, excuse me, craft your development methodology in a way that maps to that. Bring people into the team and create communication and, and kind of methodologies that map to that. And I think that's you know like one of the the, uh, the big differences that we notice sometimes with teams that have done it before and teams who haven't. Like if they've done you know kind of classic console versus. kind of service-based gaming, whether it's online or mobile. If you want to then go from packaged console to, you know, kind of online free-to-play. That's a pretty big jump, actually.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Hey, I have some final questions for you, Shanti. What is your favorite book and why?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Favorite book? So I must confess, this year I've, I've done much less reading. Uh, this has been a very busy year. My, um, my favorite book is probably the one that has had the most impact on my life, which is a strange book for a game development conversation. And that's, uh, that's Shogun uh, by James Clovell. Uh, the reason it had such a big impact on my life is I read it when I was a kid. Um, and it drove my interest in Japan. Um, and it eventually caused me to study Japanese and to move to Japan, to you know, have a whole Japan-oriented chapter of my life. And, you know, so, like, that's probably the biggest impact. Um, you know, as somebody who had a sincere interest in Japan, it's also a bit embarrassing because it's not exactly historically accurate or anything like that. It's more of a you know, fun drama. But, you know, for a 13-year-old kid in the backwoods of Oregon, um, you know, like, it, had a, uh, it had a big impact on me.
0: Nice. That's great. Is there anything in gaming that you often think about but don't often, if ever, get to say out loud?
1: <laughs> this is your way of getting, getting me into trouble.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> sure,
1: there's lots of inappropriate things that people say in answering this question. Yeah, I mean, I would say one of the things that I do have to kind of bite my tongue on sometimes is um, so I've been doing free-to-play for a long time um and for me a long time means since about 2004 and you know like uh, that that's one of the things that i think is 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 a bit um i hear folks kind of say like oh this new business model you know it's got all these characteristics and this is actually a really old business model at this point yeah um, it's like, I don't know, 20 years old i forget exactly when the first uh free-to-play games were but i think you know like the first ones that like you know, got to any Significant business scale were probably in the early 2000s, so call it a 20-year-old business model. I think that's one thing that, you know, like, um, particularly you know, kind of in the press, you know, it, it gets discussed that way as if it just happened for the first time, and you know, like it's certainly been percolating and evolving and changing and you know, kind of making platform transitions um, for a long time now. I do feel like the playbook, while it changes over time, is is a lot more known than. Sometimes we give it credit for
0: it. yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, which future big success did you miss out on, where you could have invested but you didn't, and what did you learn from that?
1: so I don't know if it's a future big success that's more of a, more of an already success um, yeah. so I had I don 't know if I had the opportunity, but I definitely saw a uh, small giant when they were you know, very early, um, and I tried to convince the company that I was running corporate for at the time to invest. Um, and I just couldn't get it, you know, across the line. And the, you know, I guess what I learned from that was definitely that I mean, the things that people think they know can really stand in their way. Um, mm-hmm. So we we'll talked a little bit about this already, but um, you know, what I think that company thought they knew was, Oh, well, we know what midcore looks like. And this ain't it. And like, that couldn't be farther from the truth of course. It's like, It's not about, you know, what you think you know about mid know Can you look at this and give it its due for what it really is? Can you be appreciative of a team's vision and a market opportunity space without bringing, you know, ego to it, without bringing history to it that isn't appropriate, while at the same time bringing all the history that is appropriate? So, like, where is your experience valuable and where is it not, I guess is the simplest way of putting it. So, like, for me, this is always a challenge because I, I have a lot of history at this point. So people ask me to, you know, unpack it for them in various contexts. And, like, we are portfolio companies. And they'll say, like, oh, well, you know, you were there at the early, you know, kind of days of social, for example. Like, how does that experience impact this one? Mm-hmm. And, like, I think it's always important to be very careful about taking knowledge and, and applying it, you know, kind of from different times in the industry. Um, I think you can. Uh, but you have to caveat it and, and, you know, kind of back backstop it appropriately. You know, like you miss, you know, kind of the um, the reality of what's being attempted. Like in that particular case, you know, like it was, you know, kind of the fusion of uh, a couple of interesting things in a way that that player type was actually really open to. And, you know, like underappreciating, you know, kind of the audience and what they want, um, I think is usually at the um, Usually at the center of some of these mismatches or you know, misdiagnoses, at least it, you know, it wasn't that case. Um, and so, yeah. like, again, it goes back to us for you know, kind of attempting to you know, understand the audience and attempting to be you know, kind of um, as egoless as we can about um, applying what we think we know.
0: Yeah, that's really an excellent one. Do you have a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today?
1: I mean, I guess it's a simple story. Um, you know, the, the first EP that I ever worked with in the games industry, he, he told not just me, but all the, the producers, um, he said, you know, this industry is small. I mean, it was really small back then, but it's, it's still true today. And, you know, you're going to work with a lot of people. You know, your QA lead today could be your boss tomorrow. Um, you know, like, the industry moves fast and it's small, so don't be a jerk, <laughs> I guess was basically his advice although he didn't quite put it that nicely and like that definitely stuck with me you know like i i have seen um a lot of the same people again and again over the years and you know it it is again proven almost weekly to me you know that it is important to um engage with the the game world as a a community in and of itself um because it is quite small Uh, and like at this point it's, it's quite global So I know people all around the world. One of the great things about being part of this community is I can pick up from San Francisco, drop down in London, and like I'm still part of the same community. There's a bunch of people within walking distance of where I live now who I know from the games industry, Um, and so all of that you know kind of you know speaks to the the "don't be a jerk" phenomenon that he was pointing to.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's really interesting because. I've been in the games industry for 15 years and I think like it is still small but it's grown in a sense that all the ecosystems around the world have a certain way of thinking about like what is the you know the optimal way of making the you know the ecosystem the local ecosystem thrive to thrive because like we're in it together that there's the comp- I think the the kind of like cutthroat competition has gone away from the industry a bit more than it used to be. I don't know if you feel the same.
1: You know, you do get you know regional competition, you know, kind of from time to time. But you know, what I have noticed is that there are—I used to call them—different schools of thought of game development around the world. To me, it's really exciting. I'm actually looking forward to there being more because, um, you know, like there's certain. You know, when I first started out, there's you know like the hardware was region coded, and there was only three regions, and so like the game industry on the console side was just necessarily prescribed to of a, a subset of the, of the world now you're seeing you know, like consumers and creators from all over the world able to kind of create things that you know sometimes don't map to any of those you know kind of old uh ideas and so you know as an investor you know, like that's really exciting to try and understand and so you know like i would talk about you know like the school of thought of you know like western game development from classic you know, kind of premium when i was spending a lot of time in Japan. Japan school, you know, like there was a whole school of, uh, of browser gaming from Germany for a while. And Finland has been, of course, you know, kind of famously successful in mobile. You know, Israel has been very successful in, in certain categories, as has China. And so, you know, I'm very interested to see, you know, like what will happen in Southeast Asia India, and Africa, South, South America, you know, kind of you know get their um, get their opportunity spaces fully fledged. You know, like, If we will see different schools of thought emerge from those places as well.
0: Mm, yeah, I bet that there will be. Hey, Sean, Shanti, this is the last question. What's the best way for founders to get in tont- contact with you if they want to have a chat?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the easy one. Uh, so transcend.fund is our, our website. So you can get in touch with us there. Uh, that's probably the preferred way. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, well, it's not a good place to pitch me. It's a good place to start a chat.
0: Mm.
1: So pitches we usually fo- focus on
0: our website nice. Hey, thanks so much, Shanti. This was really awesome chat with you
1: yeah, it's good to uh, it's good to catch up with you and uh, you know add to the podcast collection that you're uh, building at the at the media empire.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. take care, man. Uh, have a good rest of the year, and uh, I'll see you next week, year at the at a conference, hopefully. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that
0: would be nice to see everybody in person again. I hope so. Yeah. All right. Take care, man. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot, Shanti, for coming on the show. If you like our content, please follow or do subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app. And check out our website at elitegamedevelopers.com, where we have a lot of material regarding gaming startups. See you next time, guys. Bye bye.